I was not going to break myself with this book for everything that was going on. So I disconnected for 20 minutes a day where I did not let myself think about it. I didn't think about family. I didn't think about the business. I didn't think about anything but my garden or my dogs or my walk or reading whatever book I was reading for fun. And I got really good at having that me time better than I have been in years and I'm never going back. (laughs) I will continue doing that until I die because it has been life-changing. Welcome to Writes for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor, and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Rights for Women. Today I have a very special guest on the podcast. Actually, all of my guests are very special. But this one is someone who has been on the podcast a number of times and will no doubt be on the podcast again, and that person is Kelly Rimmer. And I always love to have Kelly on the podcast when a new book comes out because she always has such interesting things to share about the writing process for her books, the research the way she outlines, turns fact into fiction and gets a real emotional punch into her writing. If you don't know much about Kelly, I'll tell you a little bit about her. But first of all, let me share this week's writing tip with you. So this week's writing tip once again comes from my buddy writer, Penelope Janu. And this week I was having a little bit of trouble really nailing down this kind of spine of my story that I'm working on. I have a very short amount of time to finish the draft and have a semi-revised version of that before I go overseas in the middle of July. And I was starting to hit the panic button about not being able to really narrow down what the essence of the story was and to really get to the crux of it. And Penn reminded me of something that, of course, I already knew because we've talked about it numerous times before in our writing group, The Inkwell, but that is to write a blurb. So I thought, yeah, that's a great idea because what writing a blurb for the story does is to actually really make you focus in on the main turning points, the main emotional points of the story, the crux of the story and the blurb being the kind of marketing tool that you put on the back of the book for the reader. So it's different to a synopsis. It's not a full outline of the story that you would give to a a publisher or an agent. It is that marketing blurb that goes on the back of the book and that is designed to hook readers. So in having to come up with the blurb yourself, what you're actually doing is really focusing in on the things about the story that are going to make it interesting, that are going to make it page turning, that are going to make a reader want to stop and pick up the book. And in doing that, you're really getting to the crux of the story. So I did sit down and found a couple of kind of blurbs for this story that I had scribbled off a little while ago. And with a bit of backwards and forwards with Penelope, we came up with something that has actually really helped me sort out what the spine of the story is. And what I did then was I went back and 
rearranged some of the scenes. I took out some of the plot threads that I had set up right at the beginning of the book and moved them further into the book so that they become kind of part of the middle rather than the setup of the story. And it really helped me to see where the story is heading to get to that midpoint and then hopefully sets me up to write the second half of the story, which I have to do in a very short amount of time. So if you're someone like me who, and Penelope and many other writers that I know who is a bit of a pantser, you don't really know what's going to happen in the story, but you get to a point where you get stuck, sit down and have a go at writing a blurb and see if it sparks any ideas for you and gives you a sense of what's going to happen in the story overall and certainly give you a sense of the themes. So now on to today's episode and a little intro for our guest, Kelly Rimmer. Kelly Rimmer is an Australian author who almost needs no introduction. She has sold over 2 million books worldwide and many of her 13 novels have been translated into dozens of languages and have appeared on bestseller lists around the world, including the New York Times, Wall Street Journal and USA Today. As I mentioned, Kelly is one of the authors who has appeared multiple times on Rights for Women because she is such a wonderful writer, always has so many illuminating things to share about the writing process and is just a joy to have a yarn with. Kelly lives in central New South Wales with her husband and two children and a menagerie of very badly behaved animals, including her goats, which is another thing that we share in common. Kelly's upcoming release is The Paris Agent, a multi-point of view and dual timeline novel set in wartime France and 1970s UK. And it's a heartbreaking, at times gut-wrenching story of two remarkable women who worked as special operations agents during the Second World War. It's such a pleasure to have Kelly Rimmer back on the Rights for Women Convo Couch. Kelly Rimmer, thank you for joining me again on Rights for Women. It's my pleasure as always, Pam. Always great to have you here. And congratulations on The Paris Agent. It is another page-turning book. It had me glued to my seat, and I vividly remember getting to a particular point in the book and going, oh, now I just really can't put it down. I've just got to keep going. (laughs) So you may or may not know what point I'm talking about, but I do. I suspect I do, but maybe I won't won't try and guess. (laughs) No, we don't want any spoilers, but when one of the characters made a particular decision, I thought, oh, Anyway, I really want to talk to you about your process in writing this book. But before we do that, could you tell us a little bit on what it's about? Yes. There's, as I like to do, dual narrative, historicals. This one has three points of view. So we have two women in their special operations executive agency with the British government in World War II. And then we have a woman named Charlotte in its 1970. And she has just lost her mum. And she and her father are talking about his past and through some of the questions he has about his own wartime service, they uncover this whole story about these two amazing women during World War II. Yeah, I love that kind of backwards and forwards, which you do so well in your dual timelines and just the relationship between Charlotte and her father and just that wanting to know more about the past, which works so well with the two earlier storylines of the special agents. But I know a lot of your stories have come from ideas that you found while writing a particular book and researching a book. Something will come up in that research that sparks an idea for the next story. But what about this book? Was that the case with this book or where did the inspiration come from for The Paris Agent? 
Yeah, in 2010, long before I was published, my husband and I were talking about baby names of all the things. <laughs> and we, there was a family name on his side of the family, Violette, so French name. And he really liked that if we had a girl. And I remember Googling it. And one of the first things that popped up was Violette Sabo, who is a, one of the characters that I've, one of the real life people that I've based one of my characters on. And so in the back of my mind, I always wanted to write about her. Oh, my daughter's name is Violette. She gets Violet because we're in Australia. And when people read Violet, they go, oh, Violet. Yeah, I didn't realise it was Violet. Yeah. 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 So even I call her Violet most of the time now because... <laughs> I didn't, I should have known. I did suspect <laughs> this would happen, but I didn't realise to the extent that it would. And so I've, I've been fascinated by and a little bit obsessed with Violet Sabo ever since then. But last year I was listening to a podcast, of, as I like to do, mm. and the podcast was about a book about Diana Rowden, who was another SOE operative, and I'd never heard of her. So I had a loose interest in the SOE for quite a while, but I'd never heard of Diana Rowden. And I thought her story was so extraordinary that I just was like, yep, this is, it's time <laughs> to write about this. So that's where the basic idea came from. And I really liked the idea of writing about these phases of life that different people go through. And I wanted to write about someone who has unexpectedly been thrust into a new chapter of their life. And for Charlotte, she could never in a million years have predicted the loss of her mum. It happened suddenly and tragically, and she's grappling with it even almost a year after her mother's death. And so I wanted to write about that journey, about how you make peace with the twists and turns of, and the grief that different phases of life bring you. So that all just came together in this book. And it comes together so beautifully. But the special operations unit that you, you mentioned that the characters are based on women who worked as special operations agents. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because there is so much in the book about the women being drawn into being agents and I just found that absolutely fascinating because it's mm. it's World War Two, and obviously I realised that there were spies and things like that going on but the kind of lives that these women then were forced to live, men too, mm. the book focuses on the women. What sort of things did you find out in your research about how these women got drawn into the special operations unit and then what they did in the war? Yeah, I, when I first started researching, I don't think I had any idea how unprepared these women were. Because when you talk about spies, it's all very, it's almost glamorous in the sense of high action and they're privy to this top secret knowledge. You're operating in enemy territory and maybe only you and a couple of other people know what you're really doing there. The intrigue is really interesting and fascinating. But these women in particular were often just regular women who happened to speak French. And they weren't necessarily gorgeous or glamorous in appearance, but rather they were women that the kind of handlers thought they would fit in in France. So they might have been quite ordinary in every way. And it wasn't even about can you quickly become extraordinarily skilled? It was about can you operate for a while and blend in well enough that you won't be found out overnight? At one point, particularly for the role of a wireless operator, who are these women who are using these wireless unit, units to communicate to back to Baker Street in London? At one point, I think the average that they survived with that capture was six weeks. So they might have had two or three months worth of training. And 
And some of the accounts I read of the women in training, many of the trainers were very sceptical about the idea. This was the first time Britain had used women in armed combat and many of the trainers were not particularly supportive of that. And so these women did have, some of them really took to it. Like Violet Sabo, excellent marksman and really in lots of ways quite a strong agent just naturally had good abilities that she was able to utilize but some of them weren't and they just had to do enough to pass and then next thing you know like maybe one day you're a housewife and then three months later you're a housewife who speaks reasonable French and then three months later you're in the back of a Lysander on your way to France that is mind-boggling. And of course, it's wartime and people are doing extraordinary things and England's right there, the UK's right there and there's a channel and then there's Europe and it's the threat is ever closer and Hitler's bombing London and all sorts of things are going on. But So it's not ordinary times. But these were ordinary women. They mm. were of all ages. Some were quite young, some were much older and they just, they, I guess they stepped up when their country asked them to and... Many of them paid the highest price for that. And I think the worst thing, the most disheartening thing that I read when I was researching was about how so many of them had just disappeared. And really the British government was okay with that. They really, it was one woman in the SOE who decided it's not okay that we've lost so many agents. I'm going to go into what was left of Europe and find out what happened to them so their families can have some peace. But the British government really just was happy to wash their hands of it and get on with rebuilding. And so many of these women died incredibly awful deaths mm. at the hands of a brutal enemy who just had no regard for them. The Nazis saw them as ununiformed combatants, so they didn't have the rights, even the basic rights that the Geneva Convention gave them. So they were more vulnerable than basically any other operatives and yeah, I can't remember who said it, but there was one historian who said that probably the SOE, the, the agents of the SOE shortened the war by six months. Now, my last book was about the rocket program. And if the war had taken another six months, I suspect the Nazis might have won because they were at a point with their technology where they were really getting the upper hand. And so th these women's yeah. service counted and that they didn't even have the kind of dignity of the full support of their government after the war it's unforgivable it's unconscious it's hard to fathom isn't it all of it's hard to fathom because we live in such a different world and you can't even imagine that happening but mm. you said before that they stepped up to serve their country do you think in your research and perhaps even for your characters in this book was that their main motivation like what was motivating them to actually take that step and agree to go into such dangerous, life-threatening situations? Well, Violet is a really good example. So my character, Fleur, she's loosely based on Violet. And her motivation, like Violet's motivation, is basically revenge. Violet's husband had died in the war. His name was Etienne. And that's the same as what's happened to my character. And she feels like the war has stolen the most precious thing in her world and she wants to set Europe on fire. She just wants to see the Nazis pay for what they've done to her family. And so as with Violet left her young daughter behind, my my agent leaves her son behind and off she goes to fight to, to exact revenge and also, of course, to fight for a better world for her child. But really, in most of the accounts I read of Violet's life, she there was a burning desire to make people pay for what had happened to her family. 
so for my other spy character, whose code name is Chloe, her motivation, she doesn't have children, she doesn't have a partner. Her motivation is, you know, in a sense, it's a little less personal, but it also could not be more personal because for her, she is a British woman who's grown up in France and she gets trapped in France when the occupation begins. So she sees firsthand what the occupation's really like. So even after she escapes, she is willing and determined to go back in to try and help liberate her home country, I guess, because mm. she considers it to be home. And her whole journey, her burning desire is just to see France liberated. It was great that they had those two different motivations too because I think it really helped to distinguish the characters. And I wanted so much to represent the breadth because there were so many of them, there were dozens of these agents and there were so many different reasons that they chose to do this. There were Some of them were motivated by desire to protecting the UK and some were even motivated by the desire just to, to have a meaningful job to contribute something. And for others, it was more wanting to prove themselves. And so really there was no one answer. So I wanted to represent two of the more common motivations. Yeah. And there's another character, of course, just thinking about motivations and that whole idea of almost revenge in a sense is when one of the characters comes back from the war and finds his whole house and family everything's gone Mm. because of the bombings and I don't know I often forget how seriously the UK was affected by the Mm. war physically with the bombings Mm. so it was must have been so very real for people living through that and then feeling I guess in to some extent removed from it by not being on the continent but then if you have that opportunity to go back and do something that you feel can help it must have been a really strong motivation. Yeah, and even we live in this instant age where you can have a conversation over Zoom, but when people, so for example, there's a character who's trapped in France for a period of time and there's no way for him to communicate with his family or even his supervisors or his superiors, he's basically just trapped. And even for the agents, they have this wireless, double encryption wireless where they're sending messages and receiving messages, but that's an incredibly complex process limited to these really short windows at regular intervals. You can't just be going, how's my mum? <laughs> it's really the most essential things that just have got to be communicated in terms to keep the mission moving forward. So they were really blind when they were in the field, other than the people who had the wireless units. Yeah, it was just such mm. a different world. Even though it's only 80-odd years ago, it really feels like another planet in some ways. It does. Yeah, Definitely. So the two women whose stories that we essentially follow during the war, Eloise and Josie, as you said, they are based on these real-life characters that researched and then conglomerated different bits and pieces that you discovered in your research. What kind of decisions did you have to make around blending fact and fiction to actually take that information and then turn those women into characters and then to also put them into the same story? What were some of the decisions that you had to make for the narrative? I always worry about this, every book. I think this is the most stressful part of the writing process for me, other than actual writing. (laughs) Because it's, especially with World War II stories, you are are mirroring people's real experiences that change lives and families and continents and countries. Mm. Like this stuff is, it really happened. And so there's a certain amount of responsibility as a historical fiction writer. I can take some liberties with things. Both dates don't quite line up. I I sometimes will move minor events to fit the actual narrative that I'm trying to write, minor details. 
that kind of thing, by necessity, you have to move some of that around sometimes. And I don't know these real-life women. There are books written about particularly Violette, and I read every one I could get my hands on, but her daughter is still alive. So, you know, <laughs> you are taking someone who really lived, who existed, and then you're trying to fictionalise them. So I try to follow the historic events as much as I can. But then in this book, it was really important to me that I write in the author's note. I've gone to quite level of detail that no one's going to read, <laughs> trying to explain what was fact and what was fiction. Because I didn't want people to pick up the book and then be reading and think, oh, Diana Rowden really did this. So I've explained what was inspired by her action and what she actually did. Because historical fiction, it's supposed to inspire people to self-educate about history, especially when you're writing about little-known aspects of different historical events. But some people don't do that. Some people will just pick it up and then they'll read Inspired by Diana Rowden and then they'll think that my character, Inspired by Diana Rowden, has celiac disease. Diana Rowden did not, as far as I can tell, right. have celiac disease. And so I really wanted to be quite explicit about what was real and what is fiction. Because at the end of the day, if I don't tell a satisfying story, readers are not going to keep reading it. So I want to entice them to be interested in the history and I've got to, I've got to write beyond what I can actually, what I could possibly know about these real people. And so I think, yeah, in this case, I've ended up following the real history so much more closely than I expected when I started writing. So oh, even okay. down to Violet travelled to this place called Rouen in France, in northern France, and when I first planned out for my character, Eloise, to go to that part of France and to do a mission there, I originally had certain things in mind, but as I started writing and I was researching, going back to the research and looking at what what Violet really did, I was like, oh, that is much more satisfying than what I was going to have Eloise do. And it because she was so incredibly brave. Like that was one of the bravest oh. missions out of everything that anyone did in the SOE. And so I ended up following that and even down to the way she was arrested because Viola was arrested several times and so my character is arrested and even how she talked her way out of those situations, I could use Violet's real story. But there are other things that I couldn't possibly know and in the end I made a creative decision. I can't say much because it will be a spoiler, but I made a creative decision to have these two characters together at certain pivotal points where they just the real women were not working closely together at those points. Yeah. Having read it, I can see how that you know what I'm needed to happen. About. Yeah, for sure, for sure. But, yeah, definitely no spoilers. But you mentioned there about planning what you were going to do with the story idea and the characters. And I know from our previous chats you are someone that does quite detailed outlines. Yes. So can you just, for anybody who might not have heard our previous chats, talk a little bit about your outlining process. Was it the same for this book? Did you do the same thing that you've done previously? Yes, I think for the most part, yes. So the pivotal points pretty much followed what I planned. The way that I structured the book changed a bit this time. I originally planned on having quite a lot about their training because I was so interested in how the SOE transformed these women into spies in two or three months. I actually spent months researching that. I need to not end up using very much of it in the final oh. story. I think it's probably all there, but you see the yeah. after effects, not the day-to-day. -day. And so that was probably the one big change. And that a lot of that came out in the edits because, as I do with every book, I overwrote this thing <laughs> and it was so many thousands of words too long. And at the end of the day, the story was about 
these women just being plopped into France. And so that's where we ended up picking up the story. And I've woven some of that stuff through, but a lot of it just ended up gone. Mm. So as part of your outline, you're obviously outlining what's going to happen in the story, but are you creating the characters in a fair amount of detail as you go as well, as you're doing the whole outline of the plot? So yes and no. I knew, so for example, my character of Josie, she is she has celiac disease. So I wanted to write about someone who was chronically ill during the war because I think we forget sometimes that life goes on even around conflict. And so I wanted to write about someone who's actually battling on two fronts. Her own health constantly has let her down and she's had to learn her own body. In 1945, even 19, sorry, through the war, even as late as 1945 or 1950, doctors did not know what caused celiac disease. And so it's not like she could just get some gluten-free bread from Woolies. Mm. Like she, she's had to figure out for herself how to manage her condition. And I knew that I wanted her to have quite a difficult relationship with her mum. And so going in, I wanted to write about someone who'd seen herself as frail for much of her life and circumstances for, force her to confront her inner strength and then to step into this new phase of her life where she's actually incredibly brave and bold. And so I didn't know some of the very finer detail of how that would manifest but I had the idea that was where I started with her and it was a little bit different with some of my other characters because so there's a there's a romantic relationship that happens between two characters and it didn't catch me by surprise I knew that there would be something there but the extent as I was writing I became quite swept up in that and I wanted so much for these characters to find a happy ending. Whether or not that happens, readers will have to find out for themselves. That's right. <laughs> but I just, even as I was writing, I was trying to, sometimes it's tricky because you want the best outcome for your characters and then sometimes circumstances happen and you're like, there's got to be a way I can write around this. I know that's what I planned for a year. <laughs> yeah, so it's a bit of both, I think. I do still plan extensively. I think I've been doing this for so long now that I think I'd really struggle to sit down and write without having some idea of where I was headed. And how long would it take you to, to get, like, a whole outline created? Sometimes it's really fast. Sometimes only a day, a couple of days. If the idea comes fully formed, then I it's easy. But most of the time, a couple of weeks. And that's after you've done a lot of the research. Yeah, there's two kind of phases to it. So, again, this is a process that I've finessed a bit over the last few years, but I tend to do this pre-research, which is I'm a little bit interested in the SOE. I'm going to do some general reading. And then once I've settled on a concept, then it's much more laser-focused. Yeah. And what about your more contemporary, it's not completely contemporary storyline because it's set in 1970, mm. for a very good reason to do with the story. But what comes first? I'm imagining all the historical research come and those characters come first and then you're thinking, okay, what kind of more contemporary character do I need to fit into this? How does that work for you? I don't know where this one came from. I had the idea for her dad, my protagonist's dad. So the scenario of them mourning the loss of the mum, that was something that I planned Again, because I wanted to write about this pivotal point, this transition point when they're adjusting to this unexpected new reality. In hindsight, it was the worst possible time for me to be writing a book about someone grieving their mum because my mum almost died several times as I wrote this book. There was one point when I was doing revisions when she had a heart attack and it was like the bad, the ones that there's heart attacks and then there's it's a miracle you survive. Then the next week she had a series of strokes and then the following week she got COVID. So really... 
there was this three-week period where I was emailing <laughs> my agent and editor saying, first of all, my revisions are going to be late. <laughs> and second of all, I don't know how I'm going to open this book ever again. I don't know how I'm going to finish it. Mm. And they were amazing and obviously got there in the end. And probably there's an extra level of depth to their grief mm. because as I was editing, I was having to confront the reality that my mum was so sick. And so really <laughs> it worked out okay in the end, I think, but it was tough. It was really tough. And because it was, it's one thing to write about something, but it's theoretical. And then when it comes very close to home, it's so people yeah. will be reading this book, people lost their mum. And so even that, you've got to, you've got to treat it with some gravity because it, this is people's lived experience, even when it's not a 22 year old school teacher reflecting on the loss of her mum. There'll be people in their 70s and 80s who read this mm-hmm. book who might remember their mums. And well, you know how it is with writers, Pam. Nothing is ever wasted that happens in our lives. We read no. it. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> For better or worse. And even if people don't recognize it, sometimes it's generally we're mining everything that happens in our lives for some kind of gold. So, yeah, I think I really just set out to write about someone dealing with a shock twist in their life and Mm. how that related back to the past for her dad. And I wanted to write about father and daughter because adult fathers and daughters is not something that we often see, particularly in women's fiction or, or like healthy. These people adore each other in my story and they have this great relationship. And so I wanted to write about that, about someone who, for Noah, who's Charlotte's dad, he was an agent as well. And he has come back and rebuilt his life. He's got a brain injury, but he's managed to build this amazing life post-war life, but there's this degree of trauma Mm. that has never left him because that's what happens in war. Even if you survive, you don't survive unscathed. And, yeah, I wanted to write about a dad who's got probably some mental illness and a brain injury, but he's still a really loving dad and he's been a loving husband and an amazing member of a community and he's had Mm. his full incredible life. So, yeah, it was a random one. I don't know that one. (laughs) Noah was such an interesting character because, like you say, He had connections to so many different characters within the story from the past and then the present. So he was really an integral part of the whole story. He was lovely. Mm. He is lovely. I shouldn't say was (laughs) because he's in the book. You mentioned then just the different twists and things and turns and the story particularly I found in the second half, you really ramp up the whole twisting and turning of the plot. So when you are writing that, how much of that is pre-planned And do any of those twists and turns come to you as you're actually in the thick of the writing of that draft? No. I know exactly what you're talking about. And there's a double agent in this book. I don't think that's a spoiler. It probably says it on the back. In fact, I'm pretty sure it says it on the back. And part of what appealed to me, I'm not going to say very much about who that double agent is Mm. because it probably isn't obvious, particularly in the first part of the book. But that character is based on a real agent who not closely but I have followed some events from that real agent's life. And so there were lots of unexplained things about the failures of the SOE and some of them can be put down to incompetence and some can be put down to inexperience and then some probably were just plain old evil in the midst of the ranks. And so the reality is that evil in the real historical events cost women's lives and cost men's the lives of men. And so I wanted to explore that a bit about how people with their own selfish motivations, even in war, will make decisions that can have flow-on effects that can really impact generations, really. Mm-hmm. So I planned that character. What does change, though, as I'm writing, particularly with a big thing like that, I start out... 
And I think it's going to be this black and white thing. And then as I'm writing, I realise people are very rarely black and white. And that character, I I thought it would be obvious right from the beginning who that person is. But as I was writing, that person needed to be realistic and plausible. And so they ended up gathering a bit of humanity and then they're not entirely sympathetic. They're not intended to be entirely sympathetic, but they make a few bad decisions and it snowballs, which is how bad people tend to become bad people, right? It's not, you don't wake up one day and go, I'm going to be a bad person today. You make a decision and there's consequences and then it, over time it builds and builds. And so I think there was what I thought would be a black and white scenario ended up being a whole lot of shades of grey that towards the end become. Even at the end, though, I think that character became much more sympathetic than I intended them to be. Even once yeah. things have really gone to hell, that character has little glimpses of redemption. Yeah. not That's not the right word, but little glimpses of humanity. It's a writing technique that I don't think I'm especially good at yet, but writing characters that are complex enough that they can do dastardly things and completely alienate the reader, but at the same time they're not a cliché because you don't yeah. want them to be stereotyped. I think that's the part that even though I planned all of that, I planned what the plot points, Yeah, the character yeah. development was something that lived and evolved as I was writing. Yeah, I agree. I think having those shades of grey really does help you avoid that cliché, doesn't it? Because yeah. particularly with a, a kind of villain-type character, I guess yeah. they there is the danger that they're going to fall into that evil villain kind yeah. of cliche. That's exactly right. For this book, were there any kind of new challenges that you came across that you mm. haven't really experienced before in your writing? That's a really good question. Pro- there are, because every book teaches you something, mm. doesn't it? I think I grappled probably because, as I said, I ended up following the history of real people probably closer than I originally thought I would. And I grappled a bit more with the ethics of that this time around Mm. because I knew there would come a point where I deviate from, it's not like I'm actually writing narrative nonfiction. This is not meant to be a retelling of Violet Sabo's life. There have been those and they're good and they're done. That's not what I set out to do. So I think I probably grappled with how to do that. And the answer in the end came down to the author letter and being a little bit more explicit about this is real, this is not, this is where I got this idea from. I spent a lot of time thinking about that this time around. Even as I was writing, I was worrying about it. I was worried about, like, the resolution of this story did not happen, especially the 1970s timeline. Almost all of that is fiction. And so I wanted to be really explicit about how it all came together. And I think there's a scene in the book which follows something that really happened that was really hard to write. Towards no, the, the thing you're book. talking about. Mm. Yeah. And I've written about hard things before. Mm. I could get emotional talking about this because mm. that was that is brutal. And I've written about tough things, obviously. Like yeah. <laughs> I, I gravitate to these heavy historic events, but that one, that was really tough to write mm. that. So I think what that, I don't know, what did that teach me? I don't know. Research. I read as many accounts as that event as I could so that, and as many primary sources as I could get my hand on, so, hands on so that I was writing the bits that mattered in a way that was true to the historical na- narrative. Yeah. You do a great job of that author note too, Kelly. I read the the arc, but I 
I also got sent a copy of the final version and read the author's note in that. And yeah, yeah, yeah. you did a really great job of explaining all that. It was interesting. Thank you. That's really good. I hope people do read it. I don't blame them if they don't because they've already read quite a long book and then there's many pages of me saying, this happened, this didn't happen, this happened. <laughs> and even when an author's note is half a page, people don't necessarily read it. So I understand if they don't, but I hope they do because it really matters. So I guess connected to the kind of gruelling nature of some of the material that you were dealing with in telling the story, and you've mentioned already, Kel, that your mother was quite ill for part of the time that you were writing the book, certainly when you were revising it. I know that you've written about really difficult topics before, so I'm sure this has come up for you before, but how do you manage that on that personal level where you really need to look after yourself and look after your own state of mind? Because I'm sure that a lot of the things that you research and the things that you're writing about must play on your mind all the time during the writing process. I think I did a better job of that this time around, ironically, because I was under much more pressure in my personal life. If people have asked me that question in the past and I say quite a road to answer about, I don't know, watching comedy on TV or hanging out with friends, mm. but this time I actually genuinely, I'm 100% being honest with you, I felt like I was, my brain was just a little bit broken, particularly through those revisions. And we've got a bookstore now and family. My daughter's sick. My mum was sick. It was mm. just like too much all at once. And I made a conscious decision that I was going to prioritize myself. I was not going to break myself with this book for everything that was going on. So I disconnected for 20 minutes a day where I did not let myself think about it. I didn't think about family. I didn't think about the business. I didn't think about anything but my garden or my dogs or my walk or reading whatever book I was reading for fun. And I got really good at having that me time better than I have been in years and I'm never going back. <laughs> I oh, will continue doing that until I die because it has been life-changing. I still didn't do everything perfectly. I dropped heaps of balls, particularly over Christmas. But I learned so much about all I need is 20-minute reset and decent amount of sleep. And then I can, I'm basically superwoman. With seven and a half hours sleep and 20 minutes a day where I can do whatever I genuinely wow. want to do. And it's so simple. I don't know why. I would probably have given that answer before, but I've never meant it before. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> I like being busy. I like writing a book a year. I like having a really full life, but I think I realised when it really, when the poop really hit the fan, if it was a choice between doing the grocery shopping and having food in the house tomorrow and having my 20 minutes, then we had takeaway. Just simple yeah. things like that. If there was a shortcut I could take so that I could have my 20 minutes, and some days it was not 20 minutes, some days it was like an hour because I was like really fried. And through that's the reason I got the book finished because I learned how to really compartmentalise and have that mental health time for myself. And I'm, like I said, I'm never, ever going back <laughs> so important did you try and do it at the same time every day or was it just whenever it no, fitted that was impossible so sometimes it was early in the morning and sometimes because I'm lucky enough to work from home I could do lunchtime go for a walk at lunchtime yeah. if it wasn't too hot and or go sit and read my book under the air conditioning if it was too hot it didn't really matter what it was but it was just a case of knowing that I could just pop the pressure valve for 20 minutes a day it's so important mm. So here's a question that's actually in the book club questions, Kel, at the okay. back of the mm -hmm. book. Which scene affected you the most when you were writing it? Wow. And you probably can't give too many specific details because obviously we don't want spoilers, but was there more than one? 
Yeah, there was one big one that you, having read the book, will probably know exactly the one Mm. I'm talking about that involves both of my women who are SOE agents. That one was very affecting. And then lots of the conversations that Charlotte has with her dad about their family life and about her mum and even she has a conversation with another character who about when she's explaining how her mum died to him and just the little thing of being in her mum's favourite space in the world, the house that she built, and making a cup of tea and she's talking to this new stranger and then it all just comes tumbling out. I found that really impactful because Mm. it's such an organic thing, the way that she's struggled to talk to her friends about it because she's young and she's at an age where her friend's parents aren't dying and then her mum suddenly dies and her friends really don't know how to deal with it. And that just that seemed really... I won't say wrote itself because they never really do, but it did come out onto the page quite easily because I could just imagine, I can still picture right now exactly how I imagine the light in that scene and how the house was laid out and the garden through the windows. I can see it all so vividly. And so that always makes it easier to write it. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. So when you look back over your writing career to date, what are the moments that stand out for you and would you do anything differently? I always tell aspiring writers, use a pen name. <laughs> Such a little thing. But I didn't. <laughs> this is my name. <laughs> and I kind of expected that maybe I'd sell one book and then I'd be back to working with software. I feel like <laughs> I didn't expect to, this to become my career. <laughs> and so for my family's sake, I wish that I'd used a pen name. Yeah. Um, Do you think that would be easier to then have that division between like your kind of working slash writing life and then your personal life? Yes. So I've also written contemporary romance and I sat down at a parent-teacher interview one day and the, my son's teacher said, I've just finished reading your book and I thought she was going to say my latest historic fiction but she just read the contemporary romance, which is quite saucy in places. And then she went, oh, it's been so good for my marriage. And I was like, how are we supposed to talk about maths now? Oh, no. (laughs) She might have known it was me if I had a pen name because I wouldn't have ever hidden that I wrote those books, but it might have been less like, I don't know. (laughs) It's all entwined, isn't it? So that's probably the only thing about my career that I would change. (laughs) And when you look back, what are the things that kind of stand out for you? The thing is... I did get a book published with a digital publisher and I thought that was the most amazing thing in the world and I thought I've done that now. It will, I get to go back to just writing for me. And now here we are. I think this is book 14. Like I didn't expect this was the wildest dream. I'm three levels above my wildest dreams as a kid. I'm not even kidding. To be a writer who gets to write full-time and who happens to own a bookstore, it is like everything I ever thought. That I don't know. I can't even explain how ridiculously yeah. amazing it is. And even to the industry can be so tough. Like it's there are even authors who, when you think things are going so well for them, there are ups and downs, and there are crashes. Even when they're not necessarily, we're not putting that on social media, are we? The days when you just set your computer going, oh god, I don't know how to finish yeah. this. It's not working. <laughs> exactly. Or you're on the phone to your agent going, so I've written three quarters of a book and I've just realised there's a plot hole the size of Antarctica. And I've got to go back and rewrite it. That's not necessarily what you're admitting to publicly. Yeah, although yeah. I'm just telling you now that is <laughs> that's really for all of us, but. I think overall, I'll complain. It's been so amazing. And I always, I, I remember having a conversation with an author one day who they just signed a new deal and they said to me, I've made it. 
I can relax now. I'm never going to go backwards from here. And I was thinking, do I tell them? No, <laughs> that's not how this works. <laughs> it's not like you reach this point and then there's a stopper there to stop you going back to. Yeah. But as long as you, as long as you're writing things that you're proud of, and as long as you are still learning and growing, and it's a, it's an industry that can be really cruel at times, but there's always new ways to reinvent yourself, and there's always new opportunities to find, even though it's not always obvious what they are. And so I, I wouldn't be doing anything else. I can't think. I can't even imagine how people don't write. Like I've been, <laughs> I wrote before I was published. Even one day, my publishers will say, "Dear God, please stop sending us books. We don't want to publish you anymore." And I still will write because it is how I make sense <laughs> of the world, and it's all I, it's my only hobby still, other than a bit of gardening. <laughs> walking the dogs like yeah I don't really have any regrets other than not using a pen name pen name <laughs> never too late maybe oh. you could all you could always shift into a different genre and use I could yeah that's not a bad yeah. idea although I'm too scared to write crime couldn't write horror I'm pretty <laughs> sure you mentioned once you wanted to write fantasy actually I'm going to write speculative fiction and I have Spec-fic. been tinkering away in my spare time like it's a relaxing thing to I've got this ridiculous speculative fiction novel that I've been tinkering away with for a while that I'll probably never publish and if I do I'll publish it under I don't know I'll use a male's name I'll call it Fred (laughs) Bloggs's I don't know speculative fiction novel. (laughs) Just before I get to the last question Kel tell us about life as a bookstore owner. Oh look it's good I have a lot of books now. (laughs) (laughs) Now people are sending me free books from like publishers here and publishers there and, oh, this book coming that you might want to sell. Yes, we do want to sell it and now I get to read it. That is the dream. Recently my son was in a local theatre production and there was a lot of late nights and we live quite a bit out of town so I'd be stuck in town and I couple of nights I was at the bookshop by myself after hours just this is so cool. <laughs> but it is it is a really supportive, kind industry. Australian booksellers are the best they yes. are amazing yeah. and they're so passionate about what they do and about Australian stories and about the good stories and helping the right readers find the right books so it's been really good it's tough though there's been so much to learn and the learning curve has been like scaling their cliff because it's a whole other side to this industry that I have as a writer you do get little glimpses of it but yeah how it all really hangs together has been a lot to learn in that so it's 12 months in about three weeks so that's gone really fast. That's exciting. <laughs> but, yeah, I imagine over that 12 months it has been a massive learning curve. Just while, you, just while you're tinkering off a book as well. Yeah, no problem. I do have, I have to say, because I think sometimes people are like, how do you do it? You run a bookstore. I don't run a bookstore. I have a manager and an assistant manager and I just I do just swan in like the Queen of England every now and again and say, oh, can you dust that shelf? I'm a bit more involved than that, but, but I do have a really good team. I'm sure. This is a question that I often ask at the end of a chat, Kel, and I did check back to our last interview to make sure that I didn't ask it last time because I didn't want to repeat myself, and I don't think I've asked it of you before. But what would you say is at the heart of your writing, regardless of what it is that you're writing? That's a really good question. People and connections between them. So it doesn't really matter if I'm writing romance or speculative fiction or historic fiction. It's always about people and how they connect and how they disconnect and the settings change and the circumstances change but really at the end of the day I'm just constantly writing about families or love stories or even like a double agent in an agency and a government that isn't necessarily looking after their people and just trying to survive it's always about connection and about humanity Mm, great answer 
as always, it's been fantastic chatting to you. The Paris Agent, I think, is out on the 28th of June, end yes. of the month. And people, of course, can find you online. Where are you likely to be lurking the most? Yeah, all my places are on my website, which is kellyrimmer.com. I have a love-hate relationship with social media, but I think Instagram, Facebook are the places. You haven't dipped your toes into TikTok. I am scared of TikTok. <laughs> I have never felt as old as I did the day I spent half an hour on TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> I think yeah. know what you're good at and I'm not good at video. I'm doing video with you now as well as I know it's a podcast, yeah, but it's yeah, also video. Yeah. I can do this, but on my own, I would spend 15 days and I would produce a one-minute video out of it and it would still not be good. <laughs> so, <laughs> no TikTok for me. Yeah, play to your strengths. All the best with the Paris agent. Thank you. Can't wait to see it out in the world. I know people are going to love it and look forward to the next book next year, Thank hopefully. You, Thank you. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon, and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4W Podcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women, or find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. And remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end. <laughs>